Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Fed Day. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Thursday the 15th of June. Thank you for listening to my podcast and making Money Talk one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong on Apple Podcasts. You'll also find the show on Google Podcasts and Spotify. This is the original Money Talk, and this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Federal Reserve held its benchmark interest rate steady for the first time in more than a year, following 10 consecutive increases, but signalled its intention to implement further increases this year. In a unanimous decision of the Federal Open Market Committee, the federal funds rate was left unchanged at the existing target range of between 5% and 5.25%. It's the first time the FOMC has refrained from raising rates since the current hiking cycle began in March 2022. However, in an updated dot plot accompanying the statement that collates policymakers' forecasts for the Fed funds rate until the end of 2025, two more quarter-point increases this year are expected by members of the FOMC, according to their median projection. After months of disappointing data, economists expect the Chinese government today to cut the headline policy interest rates for the first time in almost a year. Chinese state media is signalling the PBOC will take further monetary easing measures by cutting the medium-term lending facility rate by 5 to 10 basis points today. Bloomberg News is reporting that senior Chinese officials are soliciting advice from business leaders and economists on how to revitalise the economy. Top officials have held at least six consultations in recent weeks with business executives. Leaders pressed those assembled for ideas on ways to stimulate the economy, restore confidence in the private sector and revive the the real estate industry. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will visit China early next week as part of the American effort to improve ties with Beijing. Mr. Blinken will be in China on June the 18th and 19th. A key aim is to establish communication channels that are open and empowered. The US tops diplomat on East Asia, Daniel Crittenbrink, said Wednesday. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. With a view from Taiwan is Russ Feingold, Business Development Director at Sapro Group. Following a hawkish tone from the Fed, which paused on interest rate rises today, but signalled at least two more rate increases before the end of 2023, the S&P 500 declined immediately after the decision, the dollar paired declines against a basket of currencies, and yields on two-year treasuries surged to the highest since March. However, as Jerome Powell was speaking at the media conference following the FOMC meeting, the S&P 500 recovered all of the lost ground to close in positive territory and the rise in yields unwound. Mr Powell appeared to downplay the dot plot, which projected two more rate rises this year, saying no decision has been made for the next few meetings, which encouraged investors and caused wild swings across several asset classes. By the end of the session, the S&P 500 had eked out a narrow gain, rising 0.1% to close at 4,373. The Nasdaq Composite added 0.4% to close at 13,626. During the session, both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq touched their highest levels since April 2022. 
The Dow dipped 0.7% or 233 points to end the day at 33,979. And the S&P 500 is up more than 13% this year and more than 25% from its bear market low last October as investors bet the Fed will soon stop hiking rates. The Fed next meets July the 25th to the 26th. The yield on the two-year note hit a high of 4.8% before ending the day unchanged at 4.69%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index opened 0.2% higher but gave up those gains to end the day 113 points or 0.6% lower at 19,408. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose 0.4%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was 0.1% lower at 3,229. Futures markets are pointing to a gain of 210 points, or 1.1% at the open today. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which has a lot more business and finance information from across Asia. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Let's welcome our Fed Day guests. We have with us in London, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is James Wong, who's Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities here in Hong Kong. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. Um, well, as you heard there, um, the Fed has raised, uh, sorry, left interest rates on hold, but has signalled that there's going to be some further increases this year. Let me start with you, Andrew, and just first of all, get your sort of main takeaways from what the Fed did. And said, "Well, perhaps not surprisingly, they they took a, a breather, and then not surprisingly at all, they're signalling an extra two uh, quarter, sorry, quarter of of one percent increases uh, in uh, the months to come. Uh, real rate of inflation, sorry, real rate of interest right now, of course." It is being squeezed as inflation has come down very quickly. Let's not forget, um, I prefer to look, I know the Fed looks at the PCE, I prefer to look at the CPI. Okay, it's much more eye-catching uh, for my taste. And in February, it stood at 6%. Now, in May, it's down to 4%, you know, 200 basis points uh, decline. And that means that real interest rates are now on the positive side. In other words, the Fed is charging between 5 and 5.25, and the rate of inflation is 4%. So real interest rates, in a sense, are over the rate of inflation by more than 1%. And that's quite important if the, if the uh, rates are supposed to bite on anything. So are they, but, uh, are they in, and Andrew, are they, are they in restrictive territory? It's a different issue. But uh, it simply confirmed my rather bored expectations. So, Andrew, are they in restrictive territory now, interest rates at, at this sort of level, where they're going to start sort of holding back the economy? Well, if, if I was to take the CPI rate of decline, I'm surprised that uh, the markets have not been uh, quite satisfied because, my God, that's quite steep. Six, mm. five, then f- sort of five again, 4.9, and then four down. Wow. That's, that's not doing uh, too badly. And in fact, the individual components were also spread quite widely, whereas the CPI actually increased rather than fell, rather than fall uh, during, uh, during the, the or not a similar time between April and, uh, and, uh, and March. Mm. So, James, did the Fed do the right thing? 
Oh, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to have different feelings on this uh, on this uh, rate decision. Although it's a decision that many of us are has already expected uh, about three to four weeks ago, uh, when Karshkali, uh, the one of the leading voice of the Hawks, uh, stated the term "skip" for the first time, and uh, uh, basically implying that he supported a, a skip in June. And then before the Fed, uh, I think two weeks ago, uh, before the, the, the Friday uh, of two weeks ago, we, we saw about six Fed officials coming out and uh, uh, saying different things about a Fed decision, uh, a rate decision in June. And about half of them uh, stated that they want the rate to rise in June, and uh, and the other half said uh, they they wanted to, or they implied they wanted they wanted a rate pause in mm. June. And uh, but among those who said they wanted the rate to be paused uh, is James Bullard, one of the uh, the the most hawkish Fed official there is. And uh, so, so we we didn't really expect expect anything else than a skip in June, but. The really thing, the the thing that you ask is, uh, if Fed has made the right choice in here, I I really couldn't tell. I just think if we are looking at core PCE and core CPI, those are still very sticky. If we just look at the CPI numbers that was announced uh, on Wednesday night, uh, it was still. I think the, everybody can get something out of there. If if, if you're a dovish, if you're hawkish, you can say uh, you you can see different things, different uh, components in that set of data. And uh, I, I think the Fed, the only reason that Fed decided to uh, to skip in June is because they found that financial conditions has been uh, tightened enough for them to have not as much needs to uh, raise rates in a short uh, time frame. Uh, still, well, I, I think the the way that the uh, the service price. Uh, that is being on the rise, especially in the PCE, uh, I, 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 core PCE. I just don't see how Fed could have enough maneuver space to really uh, uh, reduce or uh, change the direction of the monetary policy anytime mm-hmm. soon. Um, and Andrew, uh, the thing that um, Jerome Powell in his press conference really emphasised, I suppose the message that he stuck to most of all was that inflation still remains too high and, and interest rates may yet go higher. This isn't, um, you know, he didn't like to use the word skip, but he he made it very clear that, um, you know, interest rates were likely to go higher. Do you think investors are getting that message at last? Uh, quite likely, actually. Uh, bless, bless his little heart. And his little boots. Uh, the two percent, the two percent target hasn't changed. So, in other words, if I'm looking with a weary eye over my numbers, and we are still at four percent inflation, and the Fed targets two percent, and incidentally, targets two percent, it goes there and then it stays there. It's not that it hits and then if it bounces back again, we'll say, well, we achieved the target. Never mind. Okay. Then uh, still, we have two hundred basis points of inflation. Uh, to leak between the 4% and the 2% they're looking at. And I doubt that we're going to see such a spectacular decline, 6, 5, uh, 4, and then what, 3 and 2. In two months, we are at, uh, hitting the target. I don't think this is, uh, mm-hmm. this, this is going to happen. So the answer is, is yes, they mean the 2%, and yes, uh, they will try to hit it in one way or another, keeping in mind all the time that increases in rates I always have a lag, sometimes as much as 6%, so as much as six months, 
in, uh, in hitting their targets, and that is spending and therefore inflation. Do you think there's going to be more of a debate going on soon as, as the Fed, when you look at all these Fed inflation forecasts, do you think there's going to be a debate around changing the Fed's inflation target? Is that debate going to gain traction? I mean, I noticed Mohamed El Arian was uh, signaling that um, a couple of days ago. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to give you an unbelievably boring answer to that, because if you look at the at sprinkling of numbers, like new jobs creation, which has been coming down, the rate of unemployment, which is expected to go up. So if any of these things in the next two months uh, begin to look, begin going south, then we're going to have, again, the same thing. Did they do too much too soon? Mm. OK, I don't think this is going to be the case. And I suspect they would prefer to be mistaken on the TAFTA side rather than on the weaker side. Mm, it's a choice of policy errors, isn't it? Which one is the worst? Is it yeah. by um, yeah. leaving yeah. things and seeing inflation rip higher? Or is it by um, tightening and then tipping the economy into recession? Uh, uh, absolutely. As, 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 <laughs> sorry, I'm simply repeating what the Fed tells me. Okay, <laughs> and that is they want 2%. They, they want 2% and I don't have any reason to doubt that they will try to hit the 2%. And in between, there's going to be a lot of noise, okay, a lot of lack from numbers that are pointing southwards and therefore urging them to reconsider. And I don't think they will do the same mistake they did before, which was on the other side. Mm-hmm. Okay, they took too long to start to start tightening. James, the reason why I'm asking about investors, whether they're getting the message, is because, as you remember earlier this year, they certainly weren't um, in terms of rate cuts. Investors were calling for about 100 basis points of rate cuts earlier this year, even though the Fed was saying, nope, that's not going to happen. And there's still this disconnect because now the dot plot is basically saying two more rate rises. Uh, this year, two, that's uh, another 50 basis points increase, whereas the market is basically saying, nope, we're, we're not going to see that. At most, we might get just 10 basis points, which is what, half of a half an interest rate increase. So um, investors are still sort of fighting the Fed, aren't they? Well, they, they have been fighting the Fed since uh, the second half of last year, and uh, we've already seen how that uh, actually affects on the market. It's not really that pretty. And uh, the, I think back in last year, the, the widest gap between investors' uh, terminal rate expectation and the dot plot median is about 160 points, uh, 160 pips. So that was a wide gap, but that gap has been narrowed in the past half year, and it's been narrowed toward the direction that the dot plots uh, indicated. So I think market kind of kind of gave in since last November, and uh, then we've seen the rates moved in the direction that uh, that uh, Fed already uh, always uh, insisted. Uh, that's it. That that is more hawkish. And I think the 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 way that uh, the market and the Fed interacts is getting. Uh, a little more uh, easier to understand and to predict. Uh, the Fed is going to insist that the rate is going to stay long for, stay high for longer, and uh, the market kind of gets the uh, the the blink here and there to uh, as to with whether the uh, one uh, single uh, meeting is going to uh, is going to result in the uh, in the in the rates. So I. I I think that both the markets and the Fed are now kind of comfortable in the way that they interact. And, and I definitely think the market gets the idea of the Fed, uh, uh, of uh, what Fed was trying to imply every time before the meeting. And the, the, to enter your pre- previous question as to 
whether Fed is going to change the 2% inflation target. Jay Powell was actually uh, asked uh, this question last year, and uh, he gave two versions of answers. First, he said there was absolutely no possibility that he's going to change the 2% target. And then he followed that statement by saying uh, there might be a chance for him to discuss the, uh, the, the possibility of making the uh, 2% target uh, a different one uh, from two, 2025 onward. So, so even if uh, the Fed is to change the, the uh, target rate, target inflation rates, uh, we, will, we will still need to wait about two years or more. Mm. So, Andrew, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, Jerome Powell's press conference was taken up with him talking about can he get um, to this inflation target without um, causing a recession? Is there a path to um, not having a hard landing? He was talking a lot about employment as well, saying that this is very much tied in uh, to, to the employment market and the, the employment market is still very um, tight. So what do you, what do you think? Do you, do you agree with that, first of all? Do you think that the, the future now for rate hikes depends upon the labour market and can he get this down to um, the, the, the target without causing a recession? Well, first, deep, deep breath. Uh, the word recession is grotesquely overused. I absolutely refuse to be concerned in the slightest about it because if we're going to take that unbelievably trite definition, that's two back-to-back quarters of negative uh, GDP growth uh, on a quarter basis, annualized, whatever that means. Again, I don't think we're going to see it. So if one says about risks of 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 a recession uh, they have to i imagine simultaneously give their definition of what is uh, a recession mm. and uh, the the gdp growth has been uh, increased uh, for for next year from 0.4 to to one let's say it varies now between half a percentage point and one percent which is not exactly great so we're not exactly going to decline from let's say two and a half suddenly we're going to go down to zero in other words we are playing around a flat number and the answer is, is yes inflation and employment are going to be two key criteria and backwards how they affect the rate of increases in in wages but labor numbers in the states are notoriously fickle okay and notoriously changeable so i'm not saying that uh, they, they are misleading uh, they will need to have let's say at least a six-month uh, a rosary, <laughs> if I may permit um, <laughs> permitted the expression, of, of prayer beads, okay, <laughs> of uh, the unemployment going up and uh, job creation coming down before they say, oops, we're overdoing it. So, no, I don't really think that they are going to change their inflation target. Okay, interesting. Let's well, we'll see. James, what about the market reaction to all of this and yeah. where the markets go from here? It was quite a volatile day in, in treasuries, in the US dollar, um, in, in stocks. But if, um, as you know, we've seen this big rally in, uh, in technology stocks, which is sort of partly because of this fear, isn't it, that the, the Fed was going to cause a recession and those high growth stocks were sort of insulation from, um, from a recession. But if the, if the markets are now getting more comfortable with where the Fed is um, and believe that there's going to be a soft landing, we're not going to go into a recession. Does that change the market outlook? Because maybe you don't need to be in these high growth stocks anymore. You can start looking at value stocks, small caps, um, those which benefit from, um, you know, a steadily growing economy. Well, not at this moment. I don't think any fund managers uh, or money managers have 
have the guts to invest not into those uh, 50 big uh, mega cap uh, stocks listed in, in, in NASDAQ or the, the, the seven most uh, uh, large cap companies in NASDAQ, uh, in, in Standard Poor. And uh, the, the reason is if some of these money managers have uh, made previous arrangements preparing for a recession. They mm-hmm. increased their uh, their uh, weights uh, of stocks in uh, defensive sectors, and they decreased their uh, stocks holdings in the uh, cyclical sectors. And that resulted in a high opportunity cost and low return for the year, for the first uh, about three months of the year. So they've learned their lessons, and they know that apart from the... Uh, the fourth industrial revolution like uh, ChatGPT-linked generative AI concepts, uh, they really don't have any anything else that uh, they could really invest and have everybody else invest in. So that's really the problem of the, uh, the, the, the U.S. equity market right now. It's too crowded. But again, it's, it's not the first time that U.S. equity is being becoming crowded. But this time, uh, the, the only concern that I have is, uh, I, granted, I think, ChatGPT uh, is going to be the the really big thing, the thing that increased pro- productivity, thus the uh, the driving force behind the fourth industrial revolution. But um, even uh, a creative destruction uh, couldn't really uh, harbor from a downward economic trend. I, I I'm thinking uh, we've already we've already seen the. Uh, the, uh, the the orders that uh, Nvidia has been taken, uh, it's uh, it's it's tremendous. I mean, I mean, TikTok itself placed about one billion U.S. dollars of orders to M- Nvidia, and uh, we've seen the Nvidia have given us uh, very optimistic guidance for the second and third quarter. But I'm not so sure about the fourth quarter. My question is, if the the overall economic trend is going downwards. And even if companies are thinking if they if they have the need to spend money on ChatGPT or they're to train their own bots, uh, wouldn't that be uh, reasonable for them to wait a little if they have no more money to spend because of the downward economic trend? That's that's my question. Okay. Now I want to turn our attention to out here, Andrew. We had um, uh, a surprise cut in the seven-day reverse repurchase rate um, earlier this week by ten basis points, and it looks like uh, the PBOC is going to take further monetary easing measures today, cutting the medium-term lending facility by five to ten basis points today. What what are these small sort of cuts, which are obviously going in the opposite direction to what other central banks are doing? But what are these small cuts doing? Are they are they significant? Are they going to make any difference? Uh, the answer is, is uh, no, they are not going to make uh, a significant difference. And also they are very much par for the course and they are very much reflect the way in which the PBOC manages interest rates. For example, the one-year rate uh, was uh, cut in uh, about early 2020 and then nothing happened to it till early 2022. Okay, in between we had the COVID, we had everything else you want to pile in and nothing has happened. Then during 22, it was cut by tiny amounts twice and then nothing. All right, so if I was take the 22 till now, about a year and a half, not a great deal of action and undoubtedly they're going to cut it because they have already cut the the seven-day reverse uh, reverse purchase. Uh, And uh, frankly, 10% basis points, very little, but 
Having said that, God, I sound like an economist. How horrible. Okay, with inflation <laughs> in China, with inflation in China being less than 1%, yeah, we are still talking about real interest rates uh, being reduced, mm-hmm. even if they're in tiny amounts. But then that's what the economy has. You know, if you have 1% inflation and you have 1% interest rates, you have zero real interest rates. Well, you're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I have to be I have to be a little bit more charitable than saying, "Come on, give me a break." Ten basis points, seriously, as the Americans say. Yeah. <laughs> so is this is this really more of a, a sort of a signalling um, sort of effort? Really, it's the central bank saying, "Look, we're in easing mode. We're going to lend more support to the economy," and they're just trying to um, use that signalling power rather than they they know there's not going to be a much much of a practical effect of these rate cuts. Yeah, and also I'm still working my way through the 22 measures they they, they threw at us uh, last uh, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's quite interesting. And the fact that they are not supporting at all. They haven't tried to support at all uh, the foreign exchange rate. Okay, that has has come down from uh, from the sixes to the to the to the sevens, uh, very very neatly and sustainably high. In other words, clearly the BBOC doesn't mind seeing the exchange rate weakening. Mm-hmm which is uh, it's, it's good for their exports. Well, yeah, except I'm not quite sure whether we're talking about a, an elasticity of demand for Chinese exports vis-a-vis its price as opposed to the overall, uh, let's say, global demand, which is uh, two, uh, two separate things. Um, James, what do you make of these uh, these rate cuts, both the one that we've had and also the one potentially coming today, which will be just ahead of some important economic data as well? We've got retail sales, fixed asset investment, industrial production numbers all coming out today. Um, what difference is this going to make to the economy? Yeah, it's, it's a scary day to see all those numbers coming out because uh, based on our past experience, these numbers won't be pretty and uh, I think the the reason that the Chinese or the Greater China area stock market uh, was on the rise since the Friday before uh, is because when the Fed officials made statements about uh, having a having the interest rate paused in June, and then people think, okay, there were there will be no more uh, uh, rate differentials between the U.S. and the China because of what U.S. is doing. So the PBOC has a lot more room to do whatever they need to do on monetary policy to uh, to help boosting economies. And, and I think it's been uh, this is a series of, uh, of open market operations that they've already been doing uh, the extension of open market operations and uh, they uh, lowered. Apart from OMOs, they've lowered the uh, the the, lend, the lending rates and the saving rates, and now the uh, the LMFs. And I I'm pretty sure they're going to lower the one year and five year uh, uh, LPR as well. And I I but I don't think these are enough. And uh, along with all the rumors about the stimulus packages that they that they were preparing to launch, and uh, some of them are already official, but I still don't think those are enough. So, for example, the uh, the tax benefits for uh, NEVs. Uh, now they uh, they decided two years ago, uh, two months, two weeks ago that they would they will extend these tax benefits for another four years after 2023. And these are really not stimulus at all. I mean, mm-hmm. if I don't really buy a uh, an EV this year, 
I can buy that next year. If I don't buy it next year, I can buy the year after because the tech tax benefits are already are always going to be there. So I, I don't think the any any rumors or any policies that really landed uh, at this point uh, have any. Uh, have any practical effects on stimulating the economy. I think there are going to be more and more uh, policies going to be focused on how to boost the uh, real estate real estate, real estate sales. Mm. So, Andrew, if, if these the problems facing China, if they're not going to be resolved by incremental sort of easing rate cuts like we're, we're seeing, what do policymakers need to do to try and uh, support the economy? They're clearly very concerned. Bloomberg is reporting that Chinese officials are, are meeting with business leaders and economists, asking them for their ideas. What would you say to them? Well, uh, we, we, have, we have a very delicate issue of political economy here in the sense that uh, when it came to pass that a very important policy decision had to be made, and that was over COVID, okay, they really came down with a whack. And then, guess what? They reversed it overnight without blinking an eyelid. So I am sure this has taught them two things. Uh, possibly only one thing, although I don't believe people ever learn anything at all. But never mind. I suspect that they don't want to take very sharp policy measures now, and they will prefer possibly to risk a weak economy for two years rather than do that and then having to do again another COVID. In other words, a sharp reversal. Okay. And uh, in, in that sense, and if I was asked, which I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want to do that, uh, my advice point of view, it will be that uh, they will need to continue uh, easy as it goes, knowing fully well that this is not going to work. Mm. It is not going to work quickly, okay, rather than, rather than at all. But uh, for them to do something really quite dramatic, I suspect the COVID yes, no, okay, or rather no and then yes, okay, is, uh, is too fresh. Uh, in in uh, policy making minds, remember, COVID was a very man made policy. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with mathematics, electronics, or even, as it turns out, to be not even medicine. Okay, it was a purely political decision. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, really the priority for the Chinese government is is not boosting growth. That's not what they're trying to do here. What they're trying to do is restructure the economy. Uh, it is interesting that all the uh, uh, a murmuring gossip that comes out of the of the meetings is uh, of business saying, leave the market alone, let the private sector do the running, less central planning. And of course, let's not forget, COVID was a par excellence central planning. I mean, it cannot have been more than central planning. Okay. So I'm not quite sure whether this this is a murmured criticism of, uh, you know, don't don't let us do it rather than you trying to do it again. Whatever it is, they do. They eat parties. James, let me ask you what this means for Hong Kong stocks. Hong Kong equities, historically, they've done quite well when the Fed starts to pause a tightening um, cycle. Obviously, it remains to be seen whether there's a pause for very long here. And also, we've got the, uh, the Chinese uh, central bank cutting um, key rates. Is this going to provide a boost at all, do you think, to Hong Kong stocks or maybe put a, a floor under them? Yeah, I think the latter. It's going to put a floor under under the Hong Kong equity performance, especially the index performance, because uh, before we were thinking about the two scripts that the Hong Kong equity 
could be going towards after Fed uh, implied that there will be no raise in June. And uh, one of them being uh, the uh, investors uh, start to trade up and uh, based on the hopes that there will be more stimulus packages coming out. And uh, the other being the investors patiently wait until all stimulus packages are out, are landed. And then the economy data, economic data are still to showing some strength. And uh, I think we are going uh, at this point with the first script. And uh, so as long as these stimulus packages or policies are not landed, uh, I think we are safe. But as soon as uh, all the uh, all the rumored uh, st- stimulus packages are landed, I think there, there will be a sale on back. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. Um, Two important topics going on uh, today. You heard James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. Morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, his uh, his long hoped for visit uh, to China looks like uh, it's going to be on. Mr. Blinken is going to be in China on June the 18th and 19th. This was the visit that was initially scrapped back in February after uh, that uh, suspected Chinese spy balloon flew over the United States. Washington's been keen to reschedule the trip. Is this a good sign, Ross, of maybe some thawing in uh, in, in relations between the two? I suppose it depends on one's perspective. It was definitely a long hope for trip by the Biden administration. As you mentioned, it was previously planned for in February, but it seems that uh, the one hallmark of Biden administration foreign policy is they want dialogue. They want dialogue with China. Uh, they want dialogue with Iran over its nuclear uh, weapons program. You know, they always want this dialogue. Uh, sometimes it seems like they want the dialogue just for the sake they have dialogue, and mm-hmm. that's an achievement in itself. And then they always throw in a lot of buzzwords about uh, managing competition responsibly, and uh, but still have cooperation in some areas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think we saw a lot of that in recent hours with the statements after the phone call with Ching Gong and then the statement announcing the visit. But you mentioned another uh, key point, which is if he's only going to be in Beijing for two days, one night, uh, it might seem like two days of meetings, but that's actually not going to really be two full days of meetings. Plus, he'll spend a bunch of time with the embassy staff. Uh, How much substantive time are they going to talk, you know, the two sides, you know, blinking with his, his, uh, uh, counterparts from the Chinese government, you know, maybe five, six hours at most of talks, and they're going to cover this wide range of issues, which is going to be things like Ukraine, things like Iran, North Korea, and then Blinken will state the U.S. positions on, on some of the more sensitive issues like uh, related to trade, human rights, democracy, and of course, Taiwan. Uh, I'm saying all this by way of also saying uh, we should have no expectations of, of uh, any, any big news coming out of this meeting. So you don't think anything really can be resolved at the uh, at the end of this, although we'll have uh, the the talks, the substantive uh, substantive issues between the two sides. They're they're so far apart. I suppose it's hard to see how anything can be resolved. 
Yeah, maybe coming out of this, they'll, they'll restart some of the uh, uh, bilateral dialogue mechanisms that were uh, stopped by China last August when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. And you know, some of those issues were, were uh, illegal entry and return of uh, people who have entered the United States illegally, uh, dialogue on drugs, environment, things like that. Uh, obviously, the United States side is they're not going to give away anything on, on, on issues like Taiwan. They're not going to stop criticizing uh, policy changes in Hong Kong that have been uh, implemented by the Hong Kong or the central government. Uh, so we shouldn't have, again, we should have high expectations. But one thing is certain is uh, there's going to be a lot of criticism uh, in the United States, for example, Republicans in Congress, uh, scholars outside of government who, who uh, argue for a tougher line on China. They're, they're going to say the timing is not right. You know, if there's been these recent incidents, like in the, the Navy ship incident in the Taiwan Strait recently, uh, among other among other things, and uh, they, yeah, they're going to say that that you know, it's it's kind of like you're you're giving in too much to China just by going there. Mm. So so the, there's really two different views on, on this trip and on whether or not dialogue should be going on. The, the US's um, view is that it's important to keep the lines of communications open because that could help avoid an accident in the South China Sea or something like that. China's point of view on this seems to be that dialogue is pointless unless it's with a particular purpose um, and with an aim of actually changing something. But there's no point talking, um, but then carrying on doing all the things that you're doing um, either behind the scenes or at the front of the scenes. So who, who do you think is right? Uh, again, it's diplomacy. So uh, we'd like to say everybody is right, but actually maybe everyone's wrong. <laughs> uh, but, but I think the, you know, the, the way you asked your question, that, that actually is going to uh, help the critics because the critics are going to get in the United States, you know, they're going to say that uh, in our view, here's a bunch of things that China is doing uh, a bunch of bad behavior and and you're still going there and you extracted beforehand. You got nothing from China and you're, you're you're kind of rewarding them with the secretary of state visit. You know, why, why, well, why is it so urgent that you go there just to say that, that you went there and uh, uh, we'll probably hear more of the, the Beijing Biden accusation. That, that Biden or, or Blinken are, are on the payroll of China as well. Mm. So it's not going to change anything, is it? Because Washington's blacklisted, what, more than a thousand um, companies and, and entities on, on multiple grounds now for human right concerns, for ties to the military, uh, the use of technology and, and so on. Presumably, none of that is going to change. Anthony Blinken's not going to come away from that thinking, oh, maybe it's time to ease some of those um, sanctions. Uh, you know, well, once once these things are, are implemented, you know, once a company is on a list or once a tariff has been raised, it's very you know, politically it's it's very difficult to undo that. Uh, and of course, it involves interagency input as well. It's not only up to Secretary Blinken. Many of these things, uh, but I, I would generally agree with you that that uh, coming out of this trip, uh, Blinken's not going to announce that a bunch of companies have have come off. Or if he does, it's going to become you know, the, the smallest companies uh, on the list that arguably shouldn't have. In there to begin with, uh, but but uh, when we think about sanctions on on products that come from Xinjiang, for example, uh, again, once these things are implemented, very very difficult uh, politically to undo it. We see, and, and you could add to that list. I was just saying, you could add to that list. Uh, you know, this 
this question that's gotten a lot of atten- media attention in recent days, and that's whether or not uh, uh, Chief Executive John Lee could attend the APEC meeting in the United States later this year. Mm, I'll come on to that in just a moment. I mean, let me, let me ask you about these sanctions. I mean, we've had the Trump sanctions now, haven't we, in place for about five years. And as you say, once they're on, they never seem to come off. But presumably there will be an easy win there. Some of those sanctions were pretty pointless. They're on companies that have no relation to defence or national security issues. They could be a token gesture couldn't they have at least maybe removing some of these tariffs and then China removes some of its tariffs back? Yeah, I mean, on the, on the trade side and specifically the tariffs, I don't see the appetite there at the moment for, for the Biden administration to do that. Keeping in mind, he talked about it when he ran for president. And once he became president, uh, the, there was a big to do about a China trade policy review. Then it was announced and it was actually pretty much nothing other than to say we're, we're going to continue the tariffs. Uh, so they, they haven't done it by now. Well, that doesn't look like they're going to lower tariffs uh, on companies that are that are on these various blacklists of the United States. Again, you could probably find a company that's not that important, not a major player in its industry. Maybe it shouldn't have been on the list to begin with as well. But uh, when it comes to the, the, the larger companies uh, on the list and the policy goals of the United States and restricting trade uh, with some of them, you know, that's not going to change. We're seeing the effects of this already, aren't we, on, on some companies. We saw what a week ago, Sokoa, um, the big venture capital firm, which is a traditionally invested in a lot of Chinese companies like Didi uh, Global, they invested in uh, in Alibaba, uh, they invest in ByteDance. Um, they're going to split off their, their China business into a, basically a separate um, sort of entity. I suppose this is really another sign, isn't it, of, of decoupling between China and the U.S.? Even though Secretary of the Treasury Yellen recently said in congressional testimony that the coupling would be bad. Uh, But but, for years, we've talked about things like like a segregated Internet or a segregated tech space producing chips for China that are different than the chips produced uh, for other markets around the world. Uh, And now this this kind of segregation is is making its way into industry. Uh, so we'll probably see more of that in the future. I mean, it's not entirely new. Uh, there's examples of big multinational companies that have pulled out of China uh, either because they couldn't make money or they decided the, the even though they were making money, but the operating environment was too difficult for them. And they sold part, part or all of their business uh, to local companies. Uh, McDonald's comes to mind, right? An, an operation that used to be entirely owned by headquarters, but about six years ago, they sold most of their their stake to local operators. So, uh, you know, Chinese operators know the Chinese market best, uh, but, but we'll probably see more of this segregation going forward. Now, finally, tell me about John Lee. You mentioned that earlier. Um, the APEC meeting is, uh, is, is happening in San Francisco later this year. Hong Kong's a member. Um, so John Lee ought to be able to go to represent Hong Kong. The problem is he's on the blacklist um, because of the, uh, the democracy um, issues in, in Hong Kong. So how is this going to be resolved? Do you think uh, the, the US side will remove him from the blacklist and allow him to attend? Or give an exemption, politically maybe. very difficult. There, there'd be there'd be a, a huge amount of, of anger in Congress from both Republicans and Democrats. We now have a very active 
uh, Hong Kong advocacy uh, NGO community in Washington, D.C., uh, as there is in London and some other capitals around the world as well. So uh, you know, they would certainly advocate strongly against that. But on the other hand, when, when you take on, uh, when you volunteer to host, you're supposed to be open to, to everyone attending, with one exception, which is traditionally uh, uh, there's a stand-in for, for the president from Taiwan at the APEC meeting, so the president never, never gets to attend. Uh, but, but you're supposed to welcome everybody else. Uh, so they're, they're really caught in the middle, uh, but extremely difficult politically to, to allow him to attend because there'll be enormous criticism. The safest face-saving way out here would be if, if Chief Executive Lee announces that he uh, has a prior engagement that week. <laughs> Some urgent ironing to do or something like that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Ross, great to hear your thoughts there. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities, and Tim Huxley, who's Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Statted Advice. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.